Good evening and welcome. Uh, my name is Nick Davis and I'm a Programme Director here at the Institute for Government. On behalf of the Institute for Government and the Institute and the Productivity Institute, thank you very much for joining us for this discussion on how the government can improve public service productivity. This is a timely discussion, um, given that it is National Productivity Week this week. Uh, and indeed, the question of how to improve productivity is so important that this will be the first in a new quarterly series, Productivity Pitches, uh, that we will be hosting um, with the Productivity Institute, looking at how innovations in everything from technology and IT uh, to management and clinical improvements uh, can improve public service performance. The need for this has never been clearer. With the fiscal environment likely to remain constrained in coming years, it's critical that every pound is spent well. However, public service productivity fell both during and after the pandemic. For example, uh, important hospital activity is still lagging behind pre-pandemic levels, despite a substantial increase in both funding and staff. The government is well aware of these problems, launching a public sector productivity programme in June. And in the autumn statement, it highlighted work to reduce time spent on admin by frontline staff, uh, opportunities to embrace new technologies like AI, uh, and work to strengthen preventative services to reduce demand. So what are the causes of weak productivity in public services? What role can digital and AI do in improving that? and what lessons can be learned from the private sector. To discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by Kat Little, Second Permanent Secretary at the Treasury, and Bart Van Ark, Managing Director of the Productivity Institute. Both of our speakers are going to make brief opening remarks. I will then ask a few follow-up questions before taking questions from the audience. Uh, if you are watching live, then you can already start submitting your questions uh, using the Slido Q&A function, uh, and I will try to get through as many of those questions as possible. I'd also encourage those both watching live and in the audience to tweet using hashtag productivity pitches. Right, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Kat. Fantastic. Thank you. And thank you to the IFG for bringing us all together in Productivity Week, which I understand hasn't happened since 1963. So this is <laughs> well overdue. Uh, and I understand in 1963 it was a whole year. It was a year, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> we're barely touching the size of what is, what is possible. So um, look, I won't repeat some of the sort of context that um, we set out, but I did want to tackle kind of head on, you know, why has productivity in the public sector been such... Uh, a challenge and I think part of this is uh, we've obviously gone through a really difficult challenging period in the public sector. Productivity requires huge amounts of goodwill, human capital, physical capital to and relentless focus and the culture of empowerment to drive productivity and so having gone through the pandemic uh, there's no wonder that we've seen a retrenchment of productivity in, uh, in the public sector. Um, you will have seen what the Chancellor has said about the importance of productivity given the increases in primary spending over the very long term and simply the size of the state continues to increase if the demographic trends continue as we expect them to then we will see the state grow to nearly 42 percent of the overall economy by 2050 and the OBR sets out very clearly uh, some of the challenges and uh, sustainability issues around that so we've launched the public sector productivity review. Um, there are three things that we are focusing on and very much welcome Bart and 
uh, your views on this, but the three things that we think we've really got to shift the dial on are, one, making sure that we're making the most of AI technology and automation across all public sector services. And that's obviously inherently right because we want to deliver better services for the citizen. We genuinely think that we can improve outcomes and that we can be more effective with the uh, taxpayer funding that we've got. So that's a really big uh, part of what we have always done, but especially going forward. Secondly, you alluded to um, reducing administrative burdens on the front line. So far, our conclusions are that on average, public sector workers spend about eight hours a week doing administrative tasks. And you can have a debate about where those tasks should be undertaken, but also how they should be undertaken. And there's always going to be a certain amount of administration, but eight hours for core frontline public sector workers does not seem an effective use of their specialist skills and time. And then thirdly, we're looking at demand management and prevention <coughs> policy, and that is a huge range of issues for us uh, to continue to focus on. And that looks at everything from how do we respond to increasing failure demand in public services, where a lot of our operational activity is dealing with queries uh, decision-making, caseworking, where we need to, to respond to public inquiries. Um, but also, uh, we need to look at getting further upstream. And we all know, uh, having done many, many studies into what are the challenges to really getting after prevention policy and early intervention, it needs more risk, uh, it needs a higher risk appetite, it needs proper evaluation throughout the whole cycle of what we're doing, and it needs us to be investing in the things that have the biggest impact uh, in terms of outcomes for citizens. So um, they're the three big things. If there were two final thoughts I'd leave you with, productivity in itself is not the end game. The real end game is how do you improve outcomes in public services? And the public value framework that the Treasury published back in September 2020 sets out the importance of being clear about the outcomes you're trying to achieve. And then we work backwards to say, Therefore, how can you achieve those outcomes in the most productive way with the right outputs? And then working back through the value chain, therefore what resources, both in terms of people and money, do you need? That has been the basis on how the Treasury has thought about spending allocation and spending reviews since the public value framework. The outcome delivery plans are the kind of public manifestation of how we describe those outcomes and what we're trying to achieve. And that, I think, is absolutely critical if we're going to succeed. And I think the final thing I'd say is we've got a huge amount of work going on on culture, leadership, how you empower the front line to own and deliver greater productivity gains. Because, you know, we can't sit here in the centre of government and deliver this. Like, we don't actually deliver very little, let's face it. Like, the people on the front line who are really thinking about system improvements, better public services... Uh, driving productivity and efficiency. In my experience, they've got the best ideas and they are the people who will be at the forefront uh, of making this review work in practice. Thank you. Bart, over to you. Yeah, let me first of all say, uh, trying to do 
National Productivity Year in one week is probably the best sign of productivity Very productive. that we have seen over the past 60 years. So let's see what that is, let's see what that is going to deliver. But anyway, thank you uh, for the Institute for Government, one of our partners in this National Productivity Week. We have 15 events around the country uh, on productivity this week, and it's all about you know, trying to support a narrative and, and getting more awareness about the importance for productivity, not just for the growth of the economy, but also for people living standards. And obviously, the public sector features critically into this. And really, I think the Treasury and the Chancellor should be commended for making public sector productivity, putting it back on the agenda. It is very important, as Kat just said, not just for getting our public finances under control, but equally important for the fact that the private sector, which hasn't been doing great on productivity either, will benefit hugely from a more productive public sector in many respects and the many public services that we deliver. And I think we need to keep that in mind, that these two aims need to be very well connected. Might be good also just to think a little bit about the numbers. ONS has just put out a, a, uh, some new estimates uh, on public service sector productivity. Uh, it isn't great in the long term. Over the past 20, 20 plus years, it's only be 0.2% productivity growth. Large differences across public service sectors, healthcare and education actually doing better than many other uh, uh, government services in this respect. But uh, in the last 10 years or so, uh, since the 2010s, the productivity uh, growth has actually been improved. But a lot of that has been driven through the cost efficiency part of the story. So you know, public sector have become more efficient, have been saving on cost. And we are beginning to see some sectors in the services. I think that's certainly true for healthcare and education. I'm sure we're going to debate that a little bit. But I think we're beginning to sort of reach the limit of what we can do. The Health Foundation has recently come out with a couple of reports arguing that further cost efficiency gains are not uh, very likely and certainly will be offset by the ongoing demand on the healthcare services because of aging and other pressures on the healthcare sector. So we have to begin to think much more broadly around uh, productivity gains and move beyond as important as cost efficiency gains are, but move beyond that and think about the two other aspects of what we call the service delivery chain, which includes organizational productivity, that is how we're actually turning our resources into better outputs and into the effectiveness. Are we actually producing the public sector outputs that we realize the outcomes that we need to all to do all those great things that we, that we really do care about? <coughs> And thinking more broadly around uh, the service delivery chain is, I think, the, the first next step that we need to begin to take across all the public services to see how we are combining these, uh, these various elements. Now, I very much agree uh, with uh, some of the priorities that Kat just mentioned in terms of what can we do, particularly in the area of um, um, organizational productivity. Technology, not just AI, although AI is an element of it, but technology has huge applications and opportunities across the public services sector. It's not easy, and it's particularly not easy because technology doesn't come on its own. It comes with skills of the workforce, and it comes very importantly with management capabilities. And as much as the private sector is struggling with skills and management capabilities, this challenge perhaps is even bigger in the public sector. So if we begin to talk, and I'm sure we'll do that a little bit more during our conversation, if we talk about digital transformation, and if we talk about artificial intelligence, we have to begin to talk about do we have the workforce and do we have ways to upskill the workforce to do that? And are we able to give management the capabilities and the competencies to really deliver on that? I think that's going to be the critical parts of our discussion. So for us, the drivers are digital transformation, skills, and stronger management capabilities that will lead to more effective uh, organizations. The final thing I will say is that 
public sector productivity is very much related to public trust in the public sector. And to be honest, in some cases, we have had productivity gains in the public sector that have not strengthened trust, or perhaps even in some cases actually made it worse. And we have to really think hard about how do we deliver outcomes that the public can see is productive, but also creates more quality, and how does that improve trust of people in government. We are now quite often in a situation where people, because they don't trust government, actually don't believe that any public sector productivity improvement would benefit them. And we need to sort of change that around. And we have to talk about what are the productivity improvements which we can make to happen there. So this issue around public trust, which uh, we address also in the paper that we put in our productivity agenda, is something that we think is critical to make public sector productivity to the benefit of citizens and of society as a whole. So let me stop there and then we'll take a few of those things, I'm sure, further, Nick. Thank you. I wanted to pick up first on where responsibility for public service productivity improvement lies. Um, mm -hmm. You talked about it and kind of the role of central versus local and, and but in your paper you talk about kind of the importance of adaptive organisation design, continuous innovation and agile workforce, which all sound like things that might be best done at a local level. So. Kat, I wonder if you could say just a bit more about what you think local, uh, central government's responsibility is in this, in enabling frontline services to improve. Yeah, and it's such an important question, and we haven't quite got it, got it right, but fundamentally, central government is there to create the conditions for the public sector to succeed, whether that's allocating the right funding and resources, uh, making sure that we've got the right skills, technology, that we're thinking about it on a system-wide basis and that we've got the incentives and the resources in the right place. We also think there's quite a lot in terms of policy. And I talked a little bit about prevention um, policy and demand management. Like the biggest levers we have in central government are to think about how you can get even further upstream in preventing uh, some of the call and demand on our services in the first place. And we've done quite a lot to kind of scale and think about what more we can do to take more risks. Say, for example, the Shared Outcomes Fund that we've run for the last three years has taken small pilots, invested in early intervention, evaluated it, and then said, how can we scale it and how can we do more of that to have a bigger impact? Um, but I think that would be one of the really big debates uh, from a policy perspective. And then for me, it's all about, well, how do we work with the whole of the public sector, with frontline leaders, with the sector leaders that we have to make sure that there's real collective mission and a culture in our leadership that productivity and efficiency is important. And generally, when I go and talk to the front line, I mean, it's, it's kind of an imperative. Quite often people don't realise they're doing it, but it's an imperative to survive in quite a lot of the conditions that, that we ask people to work within. So, you know, productivity is happening every single day. And for me, it's about how does central government ensure that the sum of the parts adds up to a, to a big impact on the system as a whole. And Bart, I'm interested in your views on this as well. You're, you're Chancellor for a productivity week or even a productivity year. What are the things that you would be focusing on at a central government level? Yes, yeah, so, so if there's one sector where there is the debate between the power of scale versus the power of decentralization, it's the public sector. And it's an extremely difficult balance. There has been a bit of a belief for many years, including a lot of sort of in the sort of public sector management kind of thinking that more scale, more centralization is always going to be better and we will save money and we'll be able to deliver better services. And sometimes that's true. 
Uh, and you know, we have to some extent uh, uh, the benefit of having a centralized healthcare, for example, to actually benefit from this scale. But in many other ways, it's actually not true because we know that the quality of services are best delivered at the decentralized level. We need to have the flexibility at the decentralized level to you know, uh, adjust the, the, the services that you provide and the mix of services that you provide being adjusted to the context uh, uh, of the places that you're working in. So finding that balance is an extremely difficult one. I think in the past, some of the cost efficiency gains that we've been seeing in the past decade have been the result of scaling up. But I think, in a way, we're beginning to hit the wall and need to begin to deliver the outcomes better at the decentralized level. So I would say that the balance probably has gone a bit too much to scaling up. And we're beginning to gradually work ourselves to a more decentralized level to deliver it, both at decentralized government units as well as local government. That is your play role. And I want to pick a bit up a bit more about on the cost efficiencies point yeah. versus long-term productivity. Um, and you talked about kind of moving beyond cost efficiencies, but I wondered if you think and to what extent there is a trade-off between long-term productivity improvements and some of the short-term efficiency measures that have been as pursued, like holding down public sector pay or cutting staff numbers or reducing capital spending. Does that look like productivity in the short term, but hurt it in the long term? Yeah, so if you don't think holistically about those three aspects of public sector productivity, cost efficiency gains or budget efficiency, we sometimes call it, organizational productivity and effectiveness. If you don't think holistically about it, you are at huge risk of creating a gain in one place and losing it at the other side. Right? So there are plenty of examples where we know that hitting the target but missing the outcome is what's happening very often. We've seen it in the healthcare service. We have seen this new report from the Home Office on Police Productivity where we have plenty of examples where this has been the case. And thinking across this is so important. That's why my argument would be that management capabilities need to really be able to, to make these organizations much more adaptive, and that will make it necessary to decentralize some of the decision-making to that, because central government cannot decide what is the optimal mix of the services that are going to be provided. So yes, trade-offs exist, and I'm afraid that we have seen examples where these trade-offs were realized, and, and we could have done much better if we had thought about those three aspects of public sector productivity. Kat, the government um, has asked the ONS to improve the measurement of public sector productivity. At the moment, there's only a, a limited amount that is quality adjusted, and quite a lot of it is just input equals output. What impact do you think that better evidence on productivity and trends will have on decision-making within government about spending allocations? So I should say right up front, the ONS probably sets the gold standard for quality-adjusted public sector productivity measurement globally. Uh, when we compare to most countries, most countries are using input equals output, and we do a hell of a lot of quality-adjusted uh, measurement compared to most economies. Um, so the whole point of the Chancellor asking the ONS to look at this was exactly to ensure that we had a better understanding of the evidence and the measurement for a sustainable period so that we can factor it into the way in which we do business in the Treasury and across government. You know, if we can't measure where the gains are being had and where we're having the biggest impact, it makes it incredibly difficult for us to work out how we, how we invest and where we maximise the benefit for our investment. So 40% of public sector productivity by ONS is quality adjusted. Mm. 
Most of that is in healthcare and education, a few other sectors where there are quality adjustments, but most other government services input is output, so there's basically no productivity growth measured. And Kat is right, I think the UK is actually making more advances than many other countries in this respect, and, 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 and it's promising to see that there will be more work forthcoming. But in our work, we try to make a distinction between that sort of central measurement part and the measurement at the unit level, whether it's government units or whether it's local government, because there is just a massive amount of space for improvement. And it's partly by building much better data uh, and using those data much better. So when we talk about AI, which I'm sure we'll do in a minute or so, you know, the key issue there is that you, know, we, you can AI use, can use that very well, but you, you need two things for that. First of all, you need to have a very specified problem. What is it that you actually want to measure? Which is not easy in the public sector, because what is the outcome that we're actually after? And there are quite often multiple outcomes, even in one government sector. And secondly, we need to have really good data at, at, at the unit level. Because if you have no data, then AI has no effect, zero. It's garbage in, garbage out. So, so these are the two critical things that we need to think about. And there, there is a vast room for improvement. There's much more data around there than there are. And we need much better systems to collect those systematically, but also do that within the limitations that privacy laws obviously have to provide us. So that's, that's a big challenge that we have to do. But I think that's where a lot of the gains can be made. You've perfectly anticipated my next question, which okay. is going to be on AI. Um, <laughs> well, that was not. <laughs> yeah. Kat, I want to ask, to what extent does the government think that the biggest improvements from technology will come from transformational technology that, like AI versus improvements to basics, like computers that turn on quickly, fast Wi-Fi, <laughs> things like that? Well, I, it was exactly uh, what I was going to say is um, we still haven't maximised the benefits of off-the-shelf technology and digital services. And so I do worry that, you know, we've got to get the balance across all technology and how we use it in public service delivery. There are certainly certain areas where we think AI could be quite a game changer and we're quite keen to be first movers rather than last movers, which tends to be uh, some of our some of our technological history. So we are looking at everything from how we might use AI for decision making, for consistency of casework, uh, for how we think about developing policy. Um, if you think about the two biggest bits of what the civil service do, it's caseworking and policy development. So why not start there? Um, and it's important that we get the balance right because. Um, you know, you can never take away the importance of human judgment in a lot of what we do. So I think starting small, scaling, thinking about what the opportunity and the ambition is and getting the balance between use of technology and efficiency right is going to be a really critical thing for us to, to work through. And always, always coming back to what's the outcome and the quality of the outcome that we're trying to achieve. But they're probably the two biggest areas where I think there's going to be massive benefit. So on Tuesday, one of our 15 events was around AI and productivity, mainly with private sector players. And, and the discussion around AI sort of has, when you think about productivity, has sort of two elements to it. One is sort of the, what we sometimes call the low-hanging fruit. It's basically, what is the stuff that you can do fairly easy if you have good data and you have a problem? Large language models are a good example of that. And of course, there are huge opportunities within government to do that. You can use large language models to more speedily deliver responses to, to citizens, to more speedily deliver services, and so on. So that's good, but it is a kind of one-off efficiency effect. That's, that's very important. That helps. It's just a safe cost. 
The high-hanging fruit is sort of the more dynamic effect of, um, of AI, which sort of the more deep learning models by which we're trying to begin to anticipate what are the needs of citizens, what, where do we need to begin to focus on, how do we make sure that we differentiate deliveries across different groups of the population and things like that. That is a much harder thing to do, but that is the, that is the part that actually will give us the sort of longer-term, better outcomes that we want to get out of these and actually continued faster productivity growth. Let's go back to what the Chancellor wants. He wants an 0.5% improvement in productivity growth from the baseline. Well, you have to repeat it every year, and if you want to do that, you need to get on that dynamic track. And we do know, even from the private sector, that skills and management are absolutely critical to get anything of this going. And the private sector finds it very difficult to do. So I think my question also to you, Kat, is if the private sector finds it difficult to do, the challenges must be even bigger in the public sector, given the complexity, not because the people aren't as good, but just because of the complexity of the organizations in the public sector. Yeah, I, I think that is right to some extent. I mean, there's a high bar for public investment, and rightly so. You know, taxpayers demand that we invest that money on the things that have the biggest impact on, on the quality of services that they receive. Um, but I also think that we are learning very, very quickly from the private sector. So pr private sector organisations are taking more risk, moving very quickly. I think it's up to us to make sure that we're learning from some of the failures and mistakes quickly yeah. and where they've got success, looking at what the kind of analogous uh, translation into the public sector is. And there's lots of great examples of public and private sector partnerships where that's happening every single day at the moment. Um, so I think the interesting thing for the public sector is just the pace of learning and, as you say, how we make sure every single person in the public sector has an understanding of the opportunity, the personal responsibility and how it can deliver better service outcomes. Mm -hmm. That's a big upskilling ask for the whole of the workforce. Thank you. With that, I think I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience. So if you have a question, can you please raise your hand or submit online? I can see lots of questions that are coming in online already. Um, if I come to you, can you please give your name and organisation when doing so? Um, can you wait for the microphone to come to you? And please, 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 can you keep your questions short and ensure they are, in fact, questions? Um, right, um, we're going to come to uh, this lady here first. Um, my name's Grace Duffy. I'm from Bridges Outcomes Partnerships. Um, we work with mostly local government commissioners and, and frontline delivery services to deliver outcomes contracts, which you know, uh, includes from the outcomes fund, for which... Thank you. Um, and we know that this, we can demonstrate that this has a really uh, significant impact on improving services and data. Yet commissioners at a local level often give us feedback that they find it really hard to move to a, you know, out of the traditional procurement model. And at central government, it's really about this kind of very siloed and, and annual budget. So really mostly for CAT, I suppose. Um, just your thoughts on some of those barriers and, and how um, central government, how you're thinking about to overcome them, to enable that move to more outcomes focused, more preventative uh, commissioning and, and budgeting. Thank you. I'm going to take a couple of questions in a row. I'm going to take that gentleman right at the back. Hi, I'm Ben Hawes. I work with the Connected Places Catapult on innovation procurement, trying to help local councils uh, transform the practice. So it's a, it's a bit following on the same thing. You know, we have a new procurement act. There, is, uh, there are new technologies and, and potential new solutions, but then there is also all the, the, the pressure to, to cut costs very often does result in a can you do the same for less kind of attitude. And I, 
I, I just interested to know what you think you would like to see public sector leaders, um, what, what kind of guidance and support you'd like to them give to their procurement teams, because those teams, they're going to have a lot to learn just, just doing the new, using the new, you know, what, what's coming up new and dealing with the pressures they already have, but to, to actually grasp the new opportunities. Thank you. I might just take those two questions together, given that they dovetail um, so nicely. Uh, so that's first on the barriers to outcome-based uh, commissioning, and the second on the kind of guidance support that commissioning and procurement teams need to take advantage of the new flexibilities in the Procurement Act. Kat, I'll come to you first. Great questions. Uh, and I don't have all of the answers um, because we're trying lots of things and learning as we go. But I think on barriers to outcomes commissioning in particular, I mean, firstly, you, you actually need to have explicit understanding of what outcomes you're trying to achieve throughout the whole of uh, the system. And, you know, quite often we're not clear about what strategic outcomes are. So we don't necessarily direct uh, different bits of government or different bits of the public sector to have alignment with what we're trying to achieve nationally. And so I think to one of your earlier questions, there's a whole outcomes alignment piece and there's a whole bit about, well, actually, can we just be really clear about what the outcome is and what problem are we really trying to solve? Um, when it comes to procurement, I think we're going to have to do a huge amount on guidance and upskilling. And that kind of goes without saying. I think the difficult thing is working out the sequencing and how we create the capacity to do it. Like These things take time. Learning how, how to deal with new legislation around procurement is a massive task. Like You've got to change culture, change processes, help people to understand the benefits. And that, that takes time, takes effort, takes energy. Um, so, you know, we need to think through how we, how we do that. I think central government definitely has a role to play in making sure that there's guidance frameworks uh, and a culture from the very top that's trying to achieve those things. Well, yes, on the outcomes, the multiple outcomes issue is really big in many public sector organizations. And it's one thing to have multiple outcomes, but it's even more problematic if the outcomes are not necessarily can be contradictory. You know, again, we've, been, we've had some involvement with the police productivity report. So on the one hand, the public wants to see an outcome in having more police on the beat. On the other hand, they want to see neighborhood crime go down, but they're not necessarily correlated, right? So you hope they would be, but they're not necessarily. But they want both. And so, so defining these outcomes are really important. And I think, again, that's why where decentralization really helps, because I think at decentralized level, we can get a but much better understanding of how these outcomes relate to each other. On the procurement side, and maybe that's a bit of a question to you also, Kat, is you know, we've been arguing if there's one theme throughout Productivity Week, it is how can we get a more long-term focus on productivity? And that's very much true for government uh, productivity and public sector productivity as well. So we need to move beyond annual budgeting. Uh, we need to allow uh, government units and local units to be able to shift among different budget lines and so on and so forth. And the question is, I, I think Treasury is moving in that direction, but somehow the perception is somehow it gets stuck because there's still lots of people on the ground who say, well, we don't see anything of that happening at our level. So, so I, I think it's also a little bit of a query where you think there is a... a it's it's, it's a one of the questions I get asked the most because uh, long-term planning is essential for so much of what we are trying to achieve. And that applies in the private and the public sector. Um, so, you know, the Treasury is always going to be in favour of long-term planning and, uh, and budgeting. And the challenge is always, one, how do we manage that within the fiscal rules and the constraints that we've got to achieve uh, wider macroeconomic objectives um, for the public finances? But also, uh, how do we make sure that the whole system is thinking strategically and long-term? Now, in SR21, that was obviously a three-year 
comprehensive spending review. Yeah. I know for a fact that there's quite a lot of organisations that still stuck to annual budgeting. So there's some interesting questions there about how can we translate the very long-term spending planning into what's happening locally. And I also think there's, and sorry, this is a bit geeky as an accountant, but I think there's mm -hmm. an interesting question between budgeting and financial planning. So most bits of uh, the public sector have medium-term financial plans. Local government does. Uh, most organisations will instinctively have a multi-year financial planning and strategic plan. And so that trade-off between planning over a long-term horizon, whilst only knowing what your resources are for one year, you are asking local leaders to take financial risk and operational risk in order to reconcile the two. And I think if you've got quite sophisticated leaders who can manage those trade-offs, then it is perfectly possible if you've got the right planning uh, instruments. But, you know, that's an interesting debate to, to have. Um, and I should say, most of what we do in capital has very long-term planning behind it. You know, if you look at economic infrastructure, we've got very long-term planning cycles. Uh, if I look at the very longest programmes um, in government, you know, we've got programmes going out to 2020, 2080, I think is the longest uh, programme that I know has a financial plan out to that long. So it's not like we don't do it. Um, we just need to make more of it. Do you think that, so given that departments get um, three-year spending envelopes at um, spending reviews, is there any reason that, for example, uh, local authorities or NHS trusts couldn't be given funding settlements of similar lengths, even if just for capital. Yeah. So um, I know you will all think that the Treasury is very controlling and quite centralised, but we actually delegate and empower uh, the um, NHS and local government to, uh, to, to, to set the planning cycles and the financial budgeting cycles themselves. And I think there are also some constraints um, within some of the statutory constraints that we, we've got. Um, but in, in an ideal world, we would all have uh, much more medium-term, multi-year uh, spending cycles matched by medium-term budgets. And of course, I should say, in the statutory um, spending framework, which we are accountable to Parliament for, uh, we are accountable for annual um, targets. Um, and even though we have some flexibility, that is a statutory responsibility mm. that we have to make sure that there is annual targets that are met. I'm going to take a question from online. So this is from uh, Martin Wheatcroft, who's asked, um, how can the government expect to improve productivity if it isn't putting in a substantial amount of upfront investment? My own experience is that transformation isn't possible without significant investment in technology and people. Yeah. Well, I really agree. Um, you know, quite a, quite a lot of what we do is about you know invest invest to save and invest to, to drive better outcomes. Um, so, at the spending review in 2021, we had the largest increase in capital that we'd seen since the late 1970s, and it was quite a difficult thing for us to manage. We went from around 75 billion pounds per annum of capital up to now near 115 billion pounds. Like gearing up your supply chains and your programmatic disciplines to deliver that scaled increase in capital investment was a massive feat across the whole of the public sector and what we do. And that level of investment is due to be sustained in flat cash terms, as you know from the autumn statement. So it's not as if there isn't a large quantum uh, of investment um, out there. I do think 
quantum has to be matched by the quality of the allocation as well. And there are trade-offs and choices between human capital, tangible assets and intangible assets. And part of our job is to provide the evidence about where do you get the greatest return for both the economy, but also for citizen outcomes when we run spending reviews. Uh, and every time we run an SR, we improve it, we get better data, better evidence, but that's fundamentally what spending reviews are doing, is looking at both the quantum and the quality of the allocation to get the biggest bang for our buck. That was gonna be my follow-up question. How do you compare between the benefits of a new hospital or clearing the maintenance backlog yep. or investing in staff training and capacity to take advantage of new technologies. How do you weigh up those different things? Yep, so for most of our economic infrastructure investments, there's very clear BCRs, there's very clear economic uh, quantified things that we can look at in terms of number of jobs, the kind of impact that has on the wider local economy. And we can look at that by region. Um, we are getting better at doing it for social infrastructure and for defence. They're the other big kind of categories of investment that we think about. Uh, it is by no means perfect, but fundamentally what we have to do is put as much measurement and evidence and data into a very large spreadsheet that allows us to kind of rank and score. And when we talk through with ministers, you know, what are the trade-offs and the outcomes that you're looking at? We provide as much data and evidence that we have. We obviously provide quite a lot of analysis on all of that data at both regional and national level, and we look at economic return as well as service outcome returns. It's, it's very complicated and we're constantly trying to improve it. I would love to have better economic return data for the public sector. Well, yeah, two very quick comments. I think one of the big issues with big investments that government is doing is the expertise in government to make sure that the investment is properly um, implemented. And we don't have to describe some of the big investment projects that have suffered from the fact that, you know, we didn't have necessarily expertise in government to make sure that we, we, are, we are doing this right, that we understand what is going on. And I think, so if we do big investments, we have to make sure that the quality of, of expertise in government itself to guide these projects is there. So that's one yeah. critical issue. The second issue is, again, data are incredibly important around this, as you mentioned. But quite often, what's a little bit missing is, in, in, a, in, a, in a private business, it's very clear who's accountable for data, uh, who's collecting this, management accounts to this, financial accounts to that, and so on and so forth. In government, these responsibilities are quite often not very well defined. So at what level of government are you gonna do it, and so on and so forth. So Chartered Institute for Management Accountants yesterday came out with a report on public sector productivity making exactly that point. We need more management accounting expertise in government to actually make sure that we have these measurements that can begin to track these projects on a much more systematic basis. Once again, Bart, you've helped me transition seamlessly onto the next question I was going to ask from online, which is from um, Steve Black, who's asked, if management capability is a key input to productivity, has the drive in services like the NHS to cut management to put more resources on the front line been counterproductive? I don't know yet, uh, it's, uh, and I think I should, I should keep talking about evaluation. We have got to constantly evaluate uh, some of the big things that we are doing. I mean, there's lots of expert uh, bodies out there who would say that the NHS is undermanaged. And I talked earlier about when you're thinking about how you reduce the administrative burden, you have to look at where the administrative task is undertaken, but also how you make that task as streamlined and efficient and effective as possible. And I think we're still learning quite a lot about where both the allocation and where the, uh, the quality of the, of the administration is under, undertaken. 
Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly tough question because, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, um, you know, we need more management. And at the same time, every one of us working in organizations saying more management, is that necessarily going to help? It probably means more admin and more kind of stuff. So what is the right balance between management and people who are on the shop floor, to call it like that, to actually face with the customer, in, uh, to use that terminology? So, so it's really about the quality of management and how management engages with the, with the workforce in terms of creating in the right data and the right information, process those, feed them back, get the input from it. So, so to me, it's not the balance between management and work staff. It's more how does management actually engage with the workforce and how does it use systems and data to make effective decisions? I t just one other thing to add that was sparked by what Bart said. I think there's a really important role to play um, for benchmarking. Uh, and one of the things that we're looking at is, you know, where does the balance between corporate overhead versus kind of frontline activity sit? It's like it's it's a really useful way to look at comparing and contrasting. It doesn't mean you want to kind of drive consistent benchmarks because obviously we have lots of very different organisations. But that benchmarking insight, I think, is quite instructive. Just on management, say we published a report uh, in the summer looking at the uh, productivity problems in hospitals that identified the number of manage, managers by which we also mean kind of analysts and admin support capacity as a, an issue, but also the lack of autonomy for many managers yeah. in that they are very constrained by the targets placed on them by central government that doesn't actually give them much space to innovate. Right, I'm going to do another round of questions um, in the room. We'll take these three gentlemen here in the middle. Um, hello, my name's Joel Hoskins. I work at the Productivity Institute. Um, so we talked, <laughs> we talked, uh, well, you talked about how there is a broad agreement on the need for long-term planning and an appropriate risk appetite, but there was also broad agreement on that 60 years ago. Um, so I wondered if you have any reflections on why there hasn't, doesn't seem to be enough progress in that area, um, and what we can do differently to make sure that we're not having the same conversation in another 60 years. Thank you. And then gentleman just in front. Hi there. Um, Paul Lehman from Spire Healthcare. Um, well, my question is not actually about healthcare, it's, it's broader than that. Just wondered, what's, what is morale like in the public sector at the moment? How's that impacting on productivity um, and what can be done about it? Thank you. And then the gentleman just in front of you. Thanks. Um, Callum Jones. I work on agricultural policy in the Welsh Government. Um, my question sort of uh, goes back to something that was mentioned earlier on about um, the private sector and how uh, the British private sector has been kind of criticised for being less productive than other uh, developed economies. Um, my question is whether that is also the case in the public sector. I know there was a the point about uh, the difficulty in comparing data, but sort of despite that, uh, whether there are any lessons that we could learn from um, other countries. Perfect, thank you. So we've got, um, in reverse order, what the UK public sector can learn from productivity in other countries, the impact of low morale on productivity, and why there has been little progress on long-term planning and risk appetite. Kat, I'll come to you first. Great question. So <laughs> long-term planning and risk appetite. Well, it's a really good, uh, good question. I don't really know why. I, I can give some sort of potential... Um, Potential answers. I mean, there's definitely something about the tension between very long-term thinking and political cycles and planning cycles in government. And um, I personally think that, you know, 
that's only one, one bit of it. Quite a lot of what we do in our overall programmatic approach to things is very long-term, as I say. So I wonder, I wonder sometimes if sometimes the rhetoric around long-term thinking doesn't yet quite stack up to some of the progress that we've made. And um, I'm not sure if we're particularly good at selling some of the long-term work that we have done as well. So you tend to have this kind of set of, um, set of beliefs and myths, maybe myths is slightly strong, but there's something about how we evaluate some of the progress that we have made and make more of, of what we have done. Um, just on morale, I can't really talk for all parts of the public sector, uh, obviously, but I can certainly talk, talk about um, uh, morale in, uh, in, in the civil service. And I think, you know, we, we regularly um, measure our people engagement in the Treasury. We have some of the highest engagement scores of any organisation. We're normally up in the kind of 70% level. Um, and I do think, uh, you know, productivity we have um, measured in all sorts of different ways, but there's definitely a link between the two and the higher, higher the morale, generally the better the well-being and the better engagement um, uh, there is. I think one of the issues between morale and productivity is we don't really have ways of measuring it at the moment. Um, so people engagement, yes. Productivity for whole bits of the workforce, as we've discussed earlier, it's not as... Um, as well defined. And then on global, global comparisons, we do lots and lots of work with our global um, counterparts. Um, you know, obviously there are lots of examples. Estonia is always a really interesting one where we talk to them regularly about technology. They, they of course, started from quite a, a greenfield um, site, whereas here in the UK, we're con constantly building on legacy infrastructure and years of ageing uh, ways of doing things. So, you know, constantly doing that. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from, from other countries. But, yeah, starting with the last one, I, I think in many government services, I think other countries are struggling too. I mean, you know, public sector productivity is just an extremely difficult topic to do for some of the structural reasons we discussed. I do think there's one area in the UK where we do struggle more and that has to do with local government and the relationship with central government. And that's because we do not really have a very layered government structure between central government, regional government. We do have, of course, have the devolved nations, but within England, we don't have proper regional government structures and local government. And that, that missing link is, is really an inhibitor for public sector productivity because a lot of productivity happens at that meso level of institutions. That's where planning is happening. That's where infrastructure decisions are being taken and so on and so forth. And we do struggle there. Now, the model that we're now going towards to, at least it looks like that, sort of the combined authority model that <coughs> is working in some places like Greater Manchester and West Midlands, might get us there to some extent. Whether that's exactly the right level of government, we will find out. But I do think that's a big, that's a big shortcoming that we're facing. And other countries, certainly somewhat smaller countries, uh, uh, find it easier to deal with these kind of challenges. On morale, let me just say, say one thing there. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that engagement, workforce engagement and productivity are positively related. And it's very clear that workers want to be productive. Why would you not want to be productive? Of course you want to be productive if you see the results of it. And I think what is so important here, you know, why it is easier in the private sector for people to be engaged is because they can see the results. They produce better products and services. They sell more, they make more profits, and so on and so forth. In government, that's harder. It's just harder because we're dealing with these multiple outcomes. And we really want to see that the citizens to whom we're trying to deliver our services benefit from that. 
And I think we have to sort of get a much stronger focus again on these outcomes. Because if we can show that these outcomes are there, you will get the workforce engaged. And I think the workforce will have excellent ideas beyond cost efficiency, which I also have ideas about, but in terms of how they can turn their resources into better outputs and yeah. outcomes. And I think that there's work to be done there. If I could just add one thing to it, I mean, it's almost like a virtuous circle, isn't it, really? Because public servants, in my experience, are in public service because they want to deliver great service and achieve yep. great outcomes. And the more they can see that their passion for delivering for the, for the country is, is there, the more productive, the happier they are. And so you kind of build this virtuous circle. That's definitely true. Just to say our work on um, morale and productivity, I think there's two ways it can be damaging. Um, firstly, a lot of public services rely on people working above and beyond their contracted hours. And if morale is low, they are less likely to do that. Uh, and the second point being that if their morale is really low, then they're more likely to leave. And high turnover is also damaging for productivity, particularly for the yeah. more experienced members of staff that it takes time to train up and are more effective um, at their jobs. Um, I'm gonna take another question from online. So this one is from Edward Jones. He said, local leaders can often get the best value for money and allocative efficiency, yet the incentive is always for national politicians to ring fence small pots for, spe for specific initiative and media announcements. How can we address this? And particularly what you said about the shared outcomes fund, I, would, mm. I was going to ask what you think is the most effective funding mechanism for frontline services for enabling yeah. productivity improvements. Well, we've got lots of different ways of funding public services we've got funds we've got specific think grants we've got specific uh funds that people can bid into and i think um for local governments it's one of the questions we get asked the most which is why on earth do we ring fence so many pots of money that people have then got to bid into well we are going through a fund simplification process with local government right now and we're trying to make sure that we uh, are reducing the administrative burden and that we are trying to bring funds together to have maximum output. So um, we really do recognise that. I think when it comes to prevention policy and to where risks are higher and your benefits are less clear, the sort of funds that we've created through the Shared Outcomes Fund, I think at the moment seem to be working because we are um, providing small pots of money with very specific outcomes in mind, which have very live evaluation and we come back to on a regular basis. And so we're able to look at, well, could we scale? Is there more reason for uh, why something's worked or not worked? And how, therefore, does that feed into our investment uh, decision-making? So there's no single one right, right answer. It depends what problem you're trying to solve. To me, the levelling up programme is one of the examples of how we should not do it. Um, you know, it's, it's a great initiative, but to sort of put out these bids for projects, which, you know, you know build a road or build a, a sports hall or whatever, is not a way to think about how we are developing a place-based strategy around productivity. That has to be a joined-up investment strategy. And again, local government needs to have the ability to combine resources, to work across different fields of investment because it's about people and it's about housing and it is about infrastructure and need to have that flexibility. It goes back to a little bit of our earlier discussion that you know, we all recognize this importance of long-term uh, strategy when it comes around investment, but somehow it gets stuck somewhere in the system. And the question is, how can we unstuck that? Because I think otherwise we, we end up with continuously bidding on these projects instead of having a, a joint-up strategy is what we really need for productivity. 
Bart, I want to put another question to you. So, uh, civil servants have just been told that they will now be expected to work in the office 60% of the time, in part to ensure they are productive at work. What do speakers think about this change and work from home in the public sector more generally? Okay, uh, great topic. Uh, um, lots of discussions around it. So I find myself on the side. First of all, let's accept that we are in the biggest labor market experiment in living memory. You know, in 10 years time, we'll be looking back at these years and say, look, that was a massive change because before that, everybody was coming to the office and now it turns out that people, you know, certainly people uh, um, uh, who have these uh, administrative skills jobs are spending 30, 40%, maybe even more of their time working from home. What has that done? Now, the, if you're in that situation, you have to think about combining work from home, which is to me a given, and which will that be there? We've seen the latest data, by the way, coming out on this from the work from home group in the United States, which says it's now leveled off. You know? So it has come down, of course, after the pandemic, come down to about sort of 40%, I think. So, so 40% of working time people are now from home, and for the last year or so, it's just leveled off. That's where it will be, 40%. And uh, we'll have to strategize on that. Now, I think the opportunities with digital technology are enormous that you begin to do that. I think we can actually become a lot more productive than we were in the past if we do this in the right way. So I think we see in the private sector that this work, in the public sector it's been difficult, there have been cases where there's been even pushback on this, but I think this is an agenda we have to accept that this is the reality of the, of not the future, the reality of today, and how can we make this work? And also in the private sector, mm -hmm. we see that we need to strategize around it. It's not something where you can just say, oh, well, do what you like. You know, you work from home when you want to work from home, when you come to your and you want to work, come into the office. But you have to think, how are we going to run an organization in a way where people spend some time together because that is valuable to spend time together and some, spend some time home because it's actually much more productive to work from home than to be in the office. Yeah, so um, the whole of the civil service leadership is really supportive of the 60% um, ask. I mean, you can debate what the right balance is, but there are huge benefits to bringing people together to learn, to innovate, to collaborate, and that is a very human, natural instinct. And I think particularly when we're learning and developing and we're dealing with lots of challenges, it's good to be with people. Um, but we also recognise the value of working from home as well, and there's no doubt about it. You know, having some of our time, making the most of the flexibility and the, the benefits that working from home brings is a good thing. So we're trying to strike the right balance. Um, I think it's also important that we evaluate what we yeah. do and the impact of it. And there's, you know, again, there's no right or wrong. I think the private sector has struggled with the evaluation and justification for what the right answer is in lots of ways so I don't you know we're not necessarily going to crack it in the public sector but we should evaluate it and work through what the impact is. I've got time for a couple more quick questions so I'm going to go to these two down here ladies and gentlemen down here. Hi I'm Rosha Hughes and we've been working on the policing productivity review which was published last week but you talked about having the productivity week when we were doing our review we found that making changes that were in that the, the front line could see tangible impact on their hours such as their work on mental health demand and on how crime was recorded help galvanize support for our work and further work what other key things do you think are uh, needed to maintain focus on productivity in in the years ahead thank you thank you um, atherton fellow of the royal society of arts 
1869, Sir Northcote said, I have eliminated all dunces from the civil service and have replaced them with an entirely new spirit of economy and industry. And I'm just curious, how do we protect not going round in circles over and over and over again through history and get this right once and keep it in perpetuity? Excellent. Two suitably broad questions of how can we uh, keep focus on productivity in future years and how can we ensure that we don't need to worry about it in future years because we've resolved it now? <laughs> well, I think, I, well, look, I mean, it's kind of a similar answer for both questions, right? Mm. I mean, uh, part of it is you've got to build it into your culture, your psyche, your ways of working, the way you lead people, the way you run processes, you know, in my world, how we run a spending review. You know, we need to integrate quite a lot of the thinking in that. And that's part of why we publish the pub public value framework is to make sure that there is guidance and a framework for how we think about productivity over the long term. Um, but I think also you have to recognise that you've got to have a lot of tenacity to drive these things through. And you need that kind of evolution over time. So I'm a great believer that um, quite often the best lessons in history are the ones that you do repeat and you do keep learning. But I think the key to it is to make sure that you're building on both the mistakes and the successes of the past. And I think it's our responsibility, particularly in the civil service, to do that. Yeah, tough questions. Um, the whole purpose of National Productivity Week, and I think the same was true of National Productivity Year, is awareness. And, and awareness around productivity is really about the narrative. And, you know, if, if you go out on the street and you ask people why productivity matters, they say, well, I don't quite know, but, you know, it's probably sort of going to lower my salary or it may be costing my job, but not necessarily the positive story around it. And actually, the police report is a really good example. You, you mentioned the issue of, of mental health care. I mean, is there something more frustrating for a police officer to spend hours in an NHS ward because NHS cannot pick up the mental health patient and they have to look after them? That's, that's a terrible way of, you know, that's a way of creating bad, low morale. So, you know, it's great to see examples now that we begin to think, how can we do this differently? How can we use other players uh, to actually take over some of these roles so that everybody can do what they are really good at? So I think that sort of learning experience, and that gets to your question, we need to document what we learn and I think we do that too little. We're still, we, we do something and we say, ah, oh, it doesn't work, let's do something else. And then 10 years later, we do the same thing as we did 10 years ago because we never really documented very well why that didn't work and what did actually work. So, you know, it's not sort of giving us in the academic world to necessarily do more work, but I think, you know, we need to do more research and document these things and learn from it and take it forward from there. And if we can do those two things, create awareness and learnings, I think we can make progress. Brilliant. With that, I'm going to um, bring the event to a close. I'm sorry, I know there are many, many more questions that, uh, that we didn't have time to address, but there will be um, drinks outside afterwards, so much more time to discuss. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, this is the first of a new quarterly series, uh, and future productivity pitches will have a uh, slightly different structure, featuring uh, presentations from frontline staff and others, showcasing how innovations that they have made are improving services and saving money. So do keep an eye out for the next event, which will be in the new year. Uh, until then, uh, thank you to Kat and Bart for a brilliant discussion, uh, to the Productivity Institute for supporting productivity pitches, and thank you to all those who've watched today or listened back later on SoundCloud or YouTube. Thank you.